All right, good morning. I want to draw your attention to God's Word. And so to do that, we uh, I'd ask that you just return to your seat. If you don't have a Bible, you can find our Scripture text in your bulletin. We always have an insert. I try to always have an outline. We have an outline today, so that's good. That'll help you follow along. Uh, but certainly you can find our Scripture text uh, in your bulletin. Two things before we jump in. Um, the um, we, we had to skip some, some passages of Scripture just for calendar issues and situations and things like that. So I want to apologize, somewhat apologize, for skipping um, verses 1 through 9 in chapter 6. This is a, a passage of Scripture that Paul uh, writes to both children and parents as well as... Um, servants and masters. Um, You can certainly um, find plenty of information and commentary for those of you that are interested in that, but for the sake of our schedule and time, we're going to continue jumping ahead starting in verse 10 of chapter 6. I want to say that this is certainly one of the most famous passages of the entire letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. This is indeed what it is, and it has to do with spiritual warfare. And so we're going to give our attention to the first three verses of Paul, Paul's letter to the Ephesians as it pertains to spiritual warfare. This is the first of several sermons on spiritual warfare. So here's God's word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. I love this story. I've told it before. I'm going to tell it again. When the U.S. Marines stormed the beaches of Iwo Jima in February of 1945, the first objective that they had was to take Mount Suribachi. Mount Suribachi was an extinct volcano located on the southwest corner of this small island in the Pacific. This mountain provided a strategic position for both Japanese artillery and reconnaissance. Ultimately, the Marines knew that if they could overtake the mountain, the island of Iwo Jima would inevitably be theirs. Now as you can imagine, taking a strategic position from a formidable opponent would not be easy. And this was the case for the Marines. After a significant bombing campaign that did largely nothing, the Marines had to descend onto the island and charge up the mountain. This proved very difficult and it brought significant loss to the Marines. For three days, the Marines made their way up the mountain amidst machine gun fire, night raids, booby traps, and a steep incline. But they finally reached the top of the mountain on the fourth day. They had finally captured Mount Suribachi from the Japanese. This event was famously captured by a photographer named Joe Rosenthal, who had been assigned to the Marines to capture photos for newspapers back home. That is, in the United States. And on the day the Marines got to the top, Rosenthal captured a picture with six Marines hoisting an American flag on top of the mountain. This now famous picture depicts American valor, strength, and above all, victory. 
And like many, the first time I saw this, I thought that this picture indicated American victory over Japan. Little did I know that this picture simply indicated an American victory on Mount Suribachi. Indeed, Japan had not fallen, nor had the island of Iwo Jima. To me, this picture has forever been a picture of where we find ourselves as Christians. We as Christians look back to the victory that Christ accomplished through His life, His death, His resurrection, and in His ascension. It is a victory that mirrors the ones the Marines did overtaking Mount Suribachi. It is a victory where our righteousness has been earned and given through Christ's life. It is a victory where our sin has been paid for through Christ's death. It is a victory over death with Christ in His resurrection. It is a victory over Satan and His rule in this earth in Christ's ascending to the throne at the right hand of God. Indeed, as Christians, we look back to this great victory as something that is incredibly important in a life as Christians. Just like the victory of Mount Suribachi was for the Marines in the island of Iwo Jima. Unfortunately, many of us though look to Christ's victory, His his life, His death, His resurrection, His ascensions in a good way. But then we stop. Not realizing like the Marines realize when they are on the top of Mount Suribachi that okay, they've accomplished something great, but there's a lot more work left to do. See, they had to get all of Iwo Jima Just like us Christians, we live in this life in light of the victory of Christ, the greatest victory. We live this life amidst a great battle against a defeated foe. As Christians, we must not just grow apathetic to the battle that we are called to fight. We are facing a battle. A battle that nevertheless is inevitably going to be won by Jesus, but a battle nevertheless. And we must fight this battle We've got to fight the battles of this life. And into the battles that we all face, and it is true of all of us, we are all facing battles, we hear the words from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. In the battles of our life, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. I want to answer three questions this morning in regards to Paul's admonition to the church and to all of us to be strong. This is what we are called to by Paul, to be strong in the Lord. The three questions that I want to answer this morning is first, how? How do we be strong in the Lord? The second, like it, is why? Why are we called to be strong in the Lord? And finally, the third question I want to answer is, for what reason are we called to be strong in the Lord? I want to give this thesis to you beforehand, and then I want to prove it, but here is the thesis of why we are called to be strong in the Lord. When we are strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, we establish the kingdom of God in our hearts and our lives, as well as the hearts and lives of those around us. This kingdom, as we have seen throughout Scripture, is a kingdom of light and righteousness, goodness, grace, peace, justice, health, hope, 
It's a kingdom that I desperately long to live in. And I'm sure, and my guess is, you do too. But in order for this to happen, for this kingdom to be established in our midst, we must be strong in the Lord. So let's turn our attention to answering the three questions. How, why, and for what reason? How are we strong in the Lord? The answer to this question begins with examining the words that Paul uses for, to, for be strong. In the Greek, it's actually just one word, which comes from the Greek word endynamuthe. I can't, I'm not Greek, okay? Endynamuthe. This word, this verb, is a second person plural passive imperative. Now, I'm not a great grammarian, and it's a lot for me sometimes, and perhaps it is for you. Let me explain what a second person plural passive imperative is. It is this. The strength that Paul calls Christians to take is a strength that is not our own. It is a strength that is not our own. It's not something we conjure up in and of ourselves, but that we allow to be done in and through us. We are passive. This is why Paul says to be strong. Where? In the Lord. I believe Paul helps us though see this and how this is played out when he begins his allegorical picture in verse 11. Notice what he says. Verse 11. Right after he says, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. He says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. To be strong in the Lord, Paul is saying, is to put on the armor of God. It is an active passivity. An active passivity. This feels, it feels somewhat ironic, but let me explain what this means and how this looks. First, and most important, I think what Paul is saying is this. When we are strong in the Lord, we put on God's armor. And I want to emphasize God's armor not your armor. Just as Paul admonished us to be strong in the Lord, so he admonishes us to put on God's armor. So in going through the battles of the life that we face, we're not to look to our own strength and to our own armor that we put up to get us through the battles. We are to be dependent on God and the very things that He provides us to get through the battle. Yet so often, as has been the case in my life, I look to my own strength, my own protection, my own wisdom to get me through the battles. Indeed, I think there's a couple reasons why, but I want to name two why we do this. Why we rely on our own armor rather than God's. The first, I think, is this, and we'll get to this in a second. But we underestimate the power and the wisdom of our enemy. We think we can face the enemy on our own. And something similar to this, I think it's perhaps rooted in this understanding that we can overcome the power and the wisdom of enemies, is this, that we think we are capable in and of ourselves to fight these battles. We actually are filled with pride and we think, oh, I can get through life all on my own. I can face these spiritual battles all on my own. I don't need God's help. But Paul indeed tells us to do just the opposite. To be strong in the Lord. To put on God's armor. Perhaps you know this story. David volunteered to fight Goliath. No one in Israel was brave enough to do this. But David saw all that was going on and he said, I'll fight Goliath. And so Israel brought him and they said, okay, we've got to, we've got to arm him with Saul's armor. 
I mean, he's going to fight this big, great giant, and this poor little kid, David, is going to... We've got to put him our armor on him. But what does David do? What does he say in the midst of this? I can't use this armor. And I love what he says. The Lord, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. See, David didn't need the armor of man. He needed the armor of God. And so when Goliath saw David come with a sling and five stones, what did he do? He laughed. Because the wisdom of man thinks that the wisdom of God is foolish. And so Goliath laughed. And that was the last thing he ever did. For David went clothed in the armor of God. He went in God's armor, not in his own strength. And God delivered him. And so, when we are admonished by Paul to be strong in the Lord, what he says is this, put on God's armor, the very provision that God provides for you. To be strong in the Lord is to put on God's armor. But secondly, we are strong in the Lord when we put on all of God's armor. We are strong in the Lord when we put on all of God's armor. Notice, in both commands that he has, both in verse 11 and 13, Paul notes and commands us to put on the whole armor of God. Not just a sword, but a breastplate of righteousness. Not just a sword and a breastplate of righteousness, but a helmet for salvation. And he goes on and on and on. God has provided armor for every facet and aspect of our life. His armor is there to protect us. Yet, if we fail to take hold of the whole armor, we leave ourselves open to Satan's attacks. And trust me, he will exploit it. I was watching a movie last night, Wreck-It Ralph, Ralph Breaks the Internet. And there was a virus in the movie that got sent out. And the virus, the purpose of the virus was to find the deficiency in the... It's a long story in the game. But he finds the deficiency and he breaks the internet because he found the virus. It's the same with us. If we fail to take hold of the whole armor of God, we will be exposed to Satan and he will find it and he will expose it and he will hurt us. And so therefore, to be strong in the Lord is to take the whole armor of God, not just one or two pieces. Of course, in the coming weeks, we're going to look at what does it mean to take hold of all the very aspects of God's armor. I'm excited to do this. But in the meantime, as Christians, to be strong in the Lord, I want you to see that it is something we have to take up the whole armor of God. To be strong in the Lord, we have to remember that it's God's armor, that it's all of God's armor. And lastly, this is the third part, to be strong in the Lord means we have to put it on. We must put on God's armor. We must not neglect it. I think Paul implies in these verses, and it's pretty simple, that that this, as Christians, is true. We have been granted access to the great storehouse of God's armory. To all of God's armory. But having access and going into the storehouse and putting it on are two entirely different things. Paul tells us, put it on. Don't neglect it. 
These great pieces of armor are for us to put on. We must not neglect it. A few weeks ago, uh, me, my father-in-law, and Hayes played in this golf tournament. And one of the things that I wanted to do, it wasn't a big golf tournament, trust me, it was very silly and stupid. So, But here's the thing, I wanted to bring my five-year-old son Benjamin with us, to participate with us, so that he experienced kind of what it means to play in a golf tournament, learn the rules and things like that. Of course, my five-year-old son is in no way qualified to play in a golf tournament amongst adults. I mean, he can hit the ball, but he hits it 40 yards. He can putt the ball, but he's oftentimes lined up 30 yards right of the hole. Nevertheless, we brought him along. And what was working in Benjamin's favor was this. Me, Hayes, and my father-in-law were on point. I mean, we were striping shots right down the fairway. We were throwing balls near the pin and putting them in. It was, I mean, let's just be frank, it was easy. Golf was easy to me. And as you can imagine, of course, I won. Like I always do. I do. I win, I win those golf tournaments all the time. <laughs> but here's what I loved. Here's what I loved. You want to, you want to know the, the most exciting part about it? Well, it had nothing to do with me winning. It was to see the joy on Benjamin's face as we got to tell Benjamin, you won. You won the victory. Did Benjamin do anything? <laughs> I mean, that way, oh, Benjamin, here, put this in. It's like a putt that's a foot long, and he putted it in. All right, way to go, Benjamin! And he got a trophy, and it was like golf balls. But the smile on his face was so bright. You see, he was passive in the winning of the trophy. Me, my father-in-law, and Hayes, we, we got it done. But he got the spoils. And he got the joy of being in the team that won it. It's the same with us. How are we to be strong in the Lord? We just join God. We take His armor that He provides of it, all of it, and we put it on. And it's amazing what gets done. I mean, God is profound and powerful. So we are called to be strong in the Lord. By putting on God's armor. Secondly, or this should say the second question I want to address. Not just how are we to be strong in the Lord, but why are we to be strong in the Lord? I think it's fairly obvious why, but let me nevertheless read the Scripture. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against what? The schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are to be strong in the Lord because we have a fierce and powerful enemy. And this enemy is no small foe, but an assortment of evil forces that schemes and wrestles against us constantly. Why do we need to be strong in the Lord? Our enemy. Our enemy. Three things about our enemy that I think we need to consider. First, our enemy is numerous. Our, our enemy is num- numerous. It's fairly obvious to note that we fight against Satan. Most people would say, yes, there's an evil force like Satan against us. But what is often missed is that not only do we fight against Satan, but we also fight against the authorities, the cosmic powers, and against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. 
Commentators on this text almost unanimously agree that Paul here is describing the structure and the organization of Satan and the evil forces, his minions. Indeed, we must here be reminded that our enemy is not just one, but it is numerous. Indeed, the New Testament is riddled with examples of numerous demonic forces that are out there and that they are strong. They are in men, they're fighting angels, they're everywhere. Recall the story of the man in the tombs that Jesus encountered in Mark chapter 5. It says the man was possessed by a legion of demons. And legion is simply a Roman military phrase that captures 5,000 men. And so Scripture tells us that this man was inhabited by 5,000 demons. He lived amongst the grave, naked, cutting himself. No one could control him. Away from people. The man himself was incapable of fighting these forces and they controlled him and sought to ruin him. Likewise, we would be fools to think that Satan is just one. Indeed, Satan has a myriad of forces against God and people. But secondly, we need to be strong in the Lord because Paul tells us our enemy schemes. Our enemy schemes. He plans. He prepares. He executes with wisdom and insight a scheme to make you ineffective. And these are schemes that we are unaware of. I love this question. If you were deceived, would you know it? If you were deceived, would you know it? Of course, the answer to this question is no. Or else you wouldn't be deceived. But this is Satan's tactic. When Eve was standing by the tree that God had forbidden her to eat, Satan enacted a scheme to trip her up so that she might eat the forbidden tree. She was not startled by the sheer presence of a serpent who could talk. No, she listened and found His words to be very favorable. And so did the very thing that God Himself had forbidden her to do. He enacted a scheme And he made her deceived. She ate. And, well, all life is one big hell after that. Satan schemes against us. And his schemes can be very devastating. For a moment, I want to address something that perhaps some of you are thinking at this moment. And and I would say this maybe is a scheme. You might indeed scoff at the sheer existence of evil forces or just the reality that there are evil forces in this world that we can't see that are around. Indeed, when you read the Bible, you're like, I've never seen anything close to what the Bible describes. I've never seen a man in tombs being inhabited by 5,000 demons. This is just like folklore. And let me tell you, uh, I guess I want to reason against this. Earlier this week, I began listening to C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters. This is an allegorical book that was written by him in the 1940s, and it depicts one demon writing to his understudy about how to scheme against humans. The main demon is Screwtape. Wormwood is the recipient. And I would say this. I want to encourage you to read this book because it is incredibly beneficial to all of us to understand the various schemes that the devil employs against God and His people. And oftentimes these schemes are very subtle. They're not like, wow, I can't believe that's... whoa. They're very subtle. And it's haunting. Nevertheless, 
to those of you that are skeptical to demons and whether or not the evil forces exist, let me share with you what C.S. Lewis writes in chapter 7 concerning the existence of evil forces. Screwtape is writing to Wormwood and he says this, I wonder, you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the high command, that is Satan. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We are really faced with a cruel dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism, and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics. He goes on. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will indeed help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. Don't think for a moment that one of the schemes of the devil is the sheer ignorance that he keeps many of us in of his existence. It's a clever play. Satan schemes. And one of his greatest schemes in our day and age is the ignorance he has on us of his existence. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament is when Jesus goes into the Jewish church, which is called the synagogue, and He's going and He's teaching, and there's a man in the church who says, you are the Holy One, the high person of God. He's speaking truth, but God can see right through it, and He sees that this man is possessed by a demon. What do I learn by that? That Satan himself can even scheme in the midst of the church, and he can twist truth, which is often what he does. We must be keen on the schemes of the devil. We must be strong in the Lord because the devil is constantly scheming against us to trip us up from being dependent on God. Lastly, we need to be strong in the Lord because our enemy wrestles against us. Paul makes it abundantly clear in verse 12 that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but we wrestle with the evil forces in the heavenly places. We are engaged. We are wrestling in a conflict with Satan. And I want to say that this match usually takes place in our minds. Something goes bad in your life. And then the voices start coming in your mind. You're nothing. You're a nobody. How dare you ever even think you could somehow accomplish that? You know these wrestling matches that take place in your mind. The matches that bring discouragement, depression, despair, the hope of life. Indeed, Satan is engaged in a wrestling match, especially with our minds in our present day and age. And therefore, we need to be strong in the Lord because of it. We need to be strong in the Lord because our enemy wants to wrestle with us, wants to scheme with us, wants to see our ineffectiveness. So we've answered the how and the why we are to be strong in the Lord. Now it is high time that we address our final question. What is the reason we need to be strong in the Lord? For what end? Once again, Paul is very clear about the reason. And you can see this in verse 13. 
Therefore, he says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. What is the reason for us to be strong in the Lord? It is this, that we stand firm. What's the reason? Stand firm. How how will you make sense of this? Why is standing the reason for being strong in the Lord? I believe the answer to this question or this understanding of this comes when we consider the inverse of standing. What is the inverse of standing? It is sitting. It is sitting. And I want you to think militarily or as a soldier, what effectiveness does a soldier have if he is sitting? Indeed, a soldier who is sitting is largely ineffective. He has no leverage. He has very little ability to dodge and dart the wielding sword of the enemy. He has very little ability to wield the sword himself. A sitting soldier is an ineffective soldier. This, I believe, is the effectiveness of Satan's schemes and wrestling in our life. He attacks both us personally and us as a church to make us ineffective. I think it's important to note that Satan and his minions have no power over our salvation. And that is why Paul doesn't say that you might not be one of his. He just says that you might stand. Satan does not have the power to pluck you from God's hand. No way. God is much stronger than Satan. But Satan indeed has the power to make you personally and the church corporately very ineffective. And so Paul says, be strong in the Lord that you might stand. That you might be effective. When we stand, we are at a moment's notice ready to jump out of the way when Satan wields his store. We are prepared to leverage our body to strike with the sword that God has given us. We are quick to pick up God's shield and extinguish the flaming darts that come our way. Yes, when we are strong in the Lord we might stand as effective soldiers in the battle against Satan. I can communicate to you personally that when I fall prey to Satan's schemes and his wrestling matches, the very thing that it makes me is an ineffective person of God. Paul has told the church, you are light in the Lord. This is who he says you are. But when we fall prey to Satan's attack, we are like a light under a bed that bears no light to the world. When we fall prey, we sit. We bear no light. This reality has taken place from the beginning of the church's history. In 303 AD, the emperor Diocletian had issued a law to rescind the legal rights of Christians in the Roman Empire. And this was because they largely failed to worship the Roman gods. In Diocletian's mind, the Roman society was wasting away because the Christians had failed to give homage to the very gods the Romans had looked to for life, for sustenance, for peace and security. And so he said, the Christians who do not bow the knee to the gods of the Romans need to bow the knee to the gods of the Romans. But they did not. 
They stood firm. And they didn't bow the knee, though some did. As a result, many Christians were killed and persecuted. At one point, it got so bad that almost every pastor, bishop, priest, any sort of church leader was locked in prison to the point that the real prisoners, the ones who were doing bad things, were having to be freed. And they quickly realized, this is not good. Ten years after that law was passed by Diocletian was 313, the very year that Christianity took over the kingdom of Rome. It occurred with Constantine, who then quickly issued the, the full legalization of Christianity and the rest of, rest of the Roman Empire history is riddled with Christian history. Not a good Christian history necessarily, but it is. And I think this is a beautiful picture of what it looks like when a church stands. When it's strong in the Lord and it bears its light, resisting the schemes of the devil, it begins to give light, not only to souls, but to our neighbors and to our kingdom. When we are standing strong in the Lord, we are agents of God's kingdom, bringing His peace, His justice, His righteousness, His goodness, and His hope to our world. When we stand, we speak the truth and hold fast to the truth. When we stand, we refuse to allow injustice to rule the day, but rather seek to bring justice to that which is unjust. When we stand... We bring the good news of Jesus Christ, His life, His death, and resurrection, and His ascension to those who are riddled in sin and enslaved to it. When we stand, we fight against the schemes of the devil, interceding for the saints who are being persecuted under His schemes, pleading with God, asking Him to intercede. When we stand, I want you to see, we establish the kingdom of God in our hearts, in our lives, as well as the hearts and the lives of the people around us. This kingdom, the kingdom of our God, is a kingdom of light, a kingdom of righteousness, goodness, grace, peace, justice, health, and hope. When we stand, we bring the reality of God's kingdom into our world. Therefore, we must stand. Which leads us back to the question of how. Well, by taking up God's armor, all of God's armor. Indeed, this is the very armor we will consider in the weeks to come. But I want to close. After planting the flag on top of Mount Suribachi, the Marines were now tasked with taking the rest of the island. I mean, indeed, the mission was inevitable. The island was surrounded by myriad of naval ships, and the Japanese could not reinforce their troops nor could they reinforce with food and things like that. But nevertheless, the Marines had to go throughout the island and purge the island of Japanese rule and terror. And this is what they did. For the next 31 days, the Marines went throughout the island, taking the island from the Japanese. Indeed, the battles that were fought during those days were incredibly Costly. More men died in the 31 days that they took the island of Iwo Jima than in the four days they took Mount Suribachi. It was ruthless. 
In fact, three of the soldiers captured in the iconic photo that's now a monument in our capital, D.C., lost their lives in those 31 days. But those 31 days eventually came to an end. And Iwo Jima was finally the Americans. In a figurative way, we as Christians stand atop Mount Sarabachi. Our Lord has won the great battle over sin, death, and Satan. He has Satan surrounded. The victory over him is imminent. But we must take the rest of the island. Indeed, the battle against Satan will be difficult. Satan is not a small or ineffective being. He is wise. He wrestles with us, with his minions and his entourage. And he does this to make us ineffective. For that reason, we must take up the whole armor of God and fight the battle. And when we do, we will establish that beautiful kingdom of God in this world. It's the kingdom I long for. It's the kingdom I hope you do too. So my friends, let us be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Let me pray. The reality, Lord, I know right now, according to Your Word, is that many in this room are just being beaten over the head with the schemes of the devil. And it's just, it's just taking it. People are lost, confused, don't know up from down, left from right, and they just need You. I ask by Your Spirit that You would indeed equip them with Your armor that they might begin to get a sense of where they are and who they are and what they are called to do. Give them your armor. May they take up the armor that you have granted to them that they might fight those schemes. And in fighting those schemes, that they would stand. And in standing, would bear witness to your kingdom. A kingdom of righteousness, goodness, hope, and healing. Oh Lord, we are grateful for the victory that You say is indeed imminent over Satan. Nevertheless, we find ourselves in the battle, in that in-between time of Your great victory and of Your return. Help us, Lord. Amen.